Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I want to admit something to you to start the show out. I love that. I love a confessional here. I like being honest with you, you know? You're my best mm -hmm. friend in the world. This is a place where we get to be honest with each other, really wear our true emotions out on our sleeves. We really are these cynical, sarcastic, snake-bitten baseball fans. This is, the, this is our true colors. Yes, we are. What's, uh, what are you, what are you, what's on your mind? My confession to you is I know that my experience as a Mets fan is not worse than all of the feudal teams in baseball. Mm -hmm. Futile, not feudal, like feudal lords. No, we're trending there. <laughs> so true i know that my experience is not worse but but pretending like it is is part of the fun mm -hmm. i don't look down on other fan bases because my experience is worse than them i don't think that i'm it makes me better but i think that a lot of mets fans do kind of act that way but i am making this confession to you because it was brutal out there man i went to two mets games this weekend in a four game set against the dodgers they lost four three in both of those games they had the bases loaded with one out both of those games and did not score, did not tie the game. And uh, I have lived in Los Angeles since 2018. Many longtime listeners will know. I have been to six Mets Dodgers games and they are 0 and 6, including blowing a four run lead in the ninth inning and Edwin Diaz total meltdown in a non safe situation on a very cold night when I went to the baseball game by myself. So I know that my experience isn't worse, but pretending like it is is part of the fun. Interesting. Let's list what's the what's the com common denominator there. You've been to six games. They've lost all six. Do you need to stop going to Mets games? I'm trying to think if there's a player who's the common denominator. Maybe Juris Familia. We could get him out of here. Bye. Yeah, true. Because <laughs> <laughs> the common denominator is not Luis Rojas. I don't even think it's Pete Alonso. It's not Pete Alonso because he didn't make his debut till 2019. And they lost he's the also, 2018 also, games too. Um, um, is good. He's the he's only good, good at, hitter he's good on at the baseball. Team. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, the common denominator is obviously your boy. I I, I clearly carry some kind of negative energy. Right. I mean, we were Mets. we were talking about superstitions last week. This might be the the newest. My one. existence is the superstition. <laughs> is the curse? <laughs> no, I I feel you. Um, I think that every. I mean, every baseball fan, I, I feel like, thinks that their fan base is the most maligned. That extends from, you know, Mets fans, A's fans, Rays fans, all the way up to Yankees fans who think that every action that does not positively impact the team is an affront to God. It's completely delusional fans, Yankees yeah. fans. So I, I can, I can. Dodgers appreciate. fans are on their way there. By the way, mm -hmm. they feel like there's some invisible hand of MLB that's out to get them. Truly, yeah, there is, there is. You know, um, I don't, don't know what them. it is yet. Don't tell them. That's true. Don't spoil. But I appreciate your your admission of that because I know you've been. It's been a low a low point of a season for you. This yeah. has been. 
it's been a rough one the last couple months. So my, a, my sympathies go out to you. I'm a straight shooter. They respect me. That's why they respect me. I can tell it like it is. I call the shots <laughs> as I see them. Uh, okay. We have a wonderful episode in store for you uh, with the wonderful writer, Craig Calcaterra, formerly of NBC Sports, currently hacking it with his wonderful newsletter, Cup of Coffee, which we reference very often on this podcast. Um, if you're a fan of the show, you're going to love this conversation that we had with Craig. Uh, we'll talk a little bit up top about the, um, I wanted to talk about the Dodgers City Connect jerseys and, uh, you know, some fun unionized and minor stuff. But before we do, I am Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Paisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. So the series that I was at against the Mets was the series that the Dodgers debuted their um, much-discussed, leave it at that, much-discussed City Connect jerseys, Alex. Much-discussed. You can... Um... You can find however, many discussions about them. However, however you want to interpret that. It could be um, discussed as in discussions. It could be the emotion. Discussed. Yes. I, whatever, whatever you're feeling, it probably applies. I'm going to share my opinion about the Dodgers City Connect jerseys. I think that they look sharp. I think they look like nice jerseys. And I think that if they were not, if they were just a jersey that the Dodgers had rolled out for like alternative jerseys, almost like a, you're wearing the spring training jerseys within the year. I don't think anybody would have been mad about them. I think that the problem was that they had a chance to do way more, and they did not do it. The existence, or the execution of the City Connect jerseys was in order to honor the Latinx heritage of the Dodgers fan base. They put Los Dodgers on it. They put the outline of the city on the jersey, and they made them all blue. I I just think that they didn't try that hard, and they could have um, done gone a little further. Nike and the Dodgers could have gone a little further to kind of um, bring in an artist who was actually really a member of the Latinx fan community in LA and done something a little bit more creative. And I think most people who are designed in Jersey um, aesthetic people would agree. But on its face, I think that they looked fine on the field. I think that they actually looked kind of nice on the field. That dark blue um, in contrast with the with the wonderful green grass and the brown dirt of the infield. I think it looked they yeah, looked man. pretty good in them. Just naming colors and the and the and the blue sky. I'm naming colors clouds. because that's what the Dodgers did in the press release to this. They were just like, I know we're blue. Well, well and that's here's the, these jerseys. I, I think that a lot of teams, but the Dodgers in particular, are really relying on the visual aesthetics of their already existing brand, which in theory is not what the City Connect uniforms should have to do, right? The, the the Dodgers City Connect uniforms looked good because they're blue and the blue they wear is a gorgeous color. And whether or not you uh whether you liked the Red Sox uh UCLA Bruins City Connect jerseys, I really appreciate that they made great strides to differentiate themselves from their already kind of existing aesthetic and yeah. actually picked something tangible that they could connect with the Boston Marathon. Right. I feel similarly about Miami, mm-hmm. the Sugar Kings jerseys. They right. picked something that they could wrap their hands around and and they really embraced it. Yeah. And this just really kind of felt like a male, like they mailed this one in, in uh, for the Dodgers. 
and it feels especially egregious, complicated, given the history around the you know the forced evictions and the property seizures from Mexican Americans who were living right where the Dodgers stadium sits today. Right there is right exactly there is such a huge history there of the displacement that happened with the building of Dodger Stadium that it's just disappointing that there was I'm you know I I don't expect the Dodgers to come out and give any sort of mea culpa for for that right but why not right like I mean if you're going to quote unquote embrace it in the City Connect jersey then maybe it's time for a mea culpa and it doesn't have to be alongside the City Connect jerseys it could be in the off season. Mm-hmm. It could be any time, really. Like, we're waiting, you know? Yes. I, I do want to acknowledge, though, uh, an email from a listener, um, Nico, who I actually had the pleasure of meeting in person at Dodger Stadium uh, this past week, took a picture. It was wonderful. Uh, I want to acknowledge an email that he sent, which is that just the fact that the Dodgers are recognizing this connection with their Latinx fan base and are, however corporate speaky they're doing it, are embracing it in a way is not a negative. I think it is a net positive. And that's something that Nico outlines here. Um, and also brings up the fact that kind of a, a segue off of that, that when people complain about Dodgers fans, these are Nico's observations. When people complain about Dodgers fans, he finds that it's often an excuse for people to be racist towards Latinx fans. Um, that, that like uh, textbook stereotype of a Dodgers fan and, and using that as a way to complain about Dodgers fans and I think that that is true. And that often is overlapping. There is a Venn diagram there with how they feel about the Latinx community in the, the Mexican-American community in Los Angeles. It, there feels like there are multiple different Los Angeleses and the like rich white baseball players and rich white Dodgers fans don't always embrace in this way the way that the Dodgers are trying to do that with the City Connect jersey. So I think that it is a net positive. Um, I do think that they mailed it in. That is my opinion. You didn't. You didn't feel the the connection with with Los on there. That was can a you, tipping. Could you trans? Can you translate that for me, Los? Um, I know it's Spanish, but <laughs> I'm not. There were. Is that the same there, Los in like Los Los Angeles? Is that the same word? Whoa. Um, Whoa. That's a good question. My mind is blown right now. There were a lot of there were some calls for the the uniform to maybe incorporate some version of like Los Doyers, yeah. which is the um, affectionate nickname that a lot of fans, particularly um, Latinx Dodgers fans, have. phonetically uh, how it sounds if you have a Hispanic right, accent because there's no j sound in in Spanish, right? And it was a term used initially disparagingly towards Dodger fans, right? Um, a racial epithet that was effectively reclaimed by the, the the team's Latinx fan base. And so many people were clamoring and saying, you could have done something like this. And do I think that would have absolved the Dodgers from you know any of their transgressions against the Mexican-American community? No. Do I even think it might have been a little weird for Nike to be co-opting that sort of thing and putting that on a on a jersey without taking it any further than that 100%. That's exactly right. Nail on the head. I think that MLB has a tendency to think that they are doing enough just by doing an action and not 
talking about that action or talking about the purposes or the implications of that action. And this is something that we're going to talk about with Craig Calcaterra um, in, in many avenues. Um, but I think that, I just think that the Dodgers are not equipped to have that conversation. Like they're not, they're not going to acquit themselves well talking about why, what the reclamation of the, that word means to Dodgers fans and what it, what it means to the organization. Like this bland market tested statement that they put out alongside these jerseys is about the best that they're willing to do or like situated to do at this point, frankly. Uh, I just don't think that they're going to do a better job. Neither is Nike. More uniforms where the the color of the uh, jersey matches matches the pants. That's that obviously are not like white or gray. You know, yeah. Give me, like give them. me all green uh, A's. Rockies you know? all purples. Rockies all purple. Let's get it. Yes. They look like the NYU baseball team. They play <laughs> like the NYU baseball team too. Ouch. Um, okay. Before we get to our conversation with Craig Calcaterra, um, in light of the fact that I was delighted to meet Nico, who was wearing his Unionize the Miners shirt, I'm going to quickly shout out all the folks who tweeted photos of themselves wearing their uh, Tipping Pitches merch. Um, thank you to Robbie. Thanks to Nico. Thanks to Mr. Hines. Thanks to Logan. Thanks to Liz. Thanks to Tyler and Jamie, who were also at the same Dodgers-Mets game that I was at. Um, it was really awesome to see all of those people sharing photos and then unionize the minor shirts. If you are listening and you are new, you can get your own shirt that says unionize the minors with uh, multiple different designs, Dodgers inspired, Phillies inspired, A's inspired, twins inspired, or you can buy in, a shirt in, inspired, inspired okay? to be very the messaging. Clear. It's, it's clear. It's, it's inspired. It's, a, it's just a red unionize the minors shirt. Okay. It's just a green unionize the minors. Rob shirt. might listen to this one. Okay. Craig Calcaterra is a big guest. Rob might, might, might listen to this one. So we don't want to get the cease and desist. Uh, or you can buy a shirt that says steel bases, not wages. Um, the profits from the unionize the minors shirts go to uh, more than baseball, which if you don't know, is an organization that, uh, hands out stipends and attempts to help minor leaguers with things like housing, food, supporting their families. Um, you can find those all at tiny.cc backslash nationalize. They're also in the bio of our Twitter, which is tipping underscore pitches. So if you're interested in that, checking it out, uh, it goes to a good cause and uh, the shirts are pretty great. I love wearing them. They yeah. start a lot of fun conversations at baseball games. They do. I just I want to shout out Emily too, who came up to me at the Yankees game uh, yesterday, we're recording this on Sunday, and and saw my unionize the minor shirt and, and noted that she had worn hers to the game the day before. And so, uh, yeah, please, uh, you know, make new friends at the games. You see someone else rocking a unionize the minor shirt, let's raise that fist of solidarity. Like that's <laughs> hit them with a Twitter follow, whatever it takes. Man. Dismantling MLB teams one <laughs> raised fist and Twitter photo <laughs> at a time. Uh, okay, that's enough of us up top. Let's go to our conversation with the wonderful Craig Calcaterra. I'm not angry anymore. Well, sometimes I am. I don't think badly of you. Well, sometimes I do. All right, this one's a long time coming. We probably should have done this about a year ago, but we always kind of knew it was in the back pocket that we were going to reach out and get Craig Calcaterra on the podcast. Former columnist at NBC Sports, baseball columnist, current writer of the Cup of Coffee newsletter, which has been oft-cited on this here podcast. Craig, thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. We're really excited about this one because Alex and I sit down, we try to come up with topics for the podcast, and we're like, hey, 
Craig had a good a good bit about this in the newsletter this week. Maybe we should have a conversation off of that. So we're, so, we're merging the Venn diagram here. So it's it's funny. I, I don't do that much uh, sports radio anymore. I used to be one of those baseball writers who would go on like 15 you know sports talk shows a week. And I've limited it severely just because it's a it's a time suck and sports radio and I have a complicated relationship but of the the yeah. few that I still Is Cody do Cody Bellinger too soft this year Craig yeah ex- yeah it's like that kind of thing and um the ones that I do do I do because like I like the hosts or they're smart or whatever and, and they all we've become kind of friends and they all admit to me in DMs they're like we just use your your newsletter as sort of like show prep and I'm like that's fine that's great <laughs> <laughs> I love it it's like you know fantastic makes me look more relevant than i am <laughs> yeah well we should uh encourage all of our listeners to go and and check that out if you haven't already because it's i we were remarking before we logged on uh that it's just it's you're prolific i don't know how you are able to just process all of the news that comes and in and then and then turn it into a, a long form piece that comes out every day it's it's sort of a joke, but it's not really a joke that um, it's because of my past life as a lawyer. Because um, mm. I was I, I went to law school, I practiced law for eleven years, and I was a litigator. And the thing about being a litigator is you don't have like a specialty. It's not like a finance guy where you know everything about the markets or a corporate mergers guy or something where you know everything. A litigator, you get a case and you've got to learn everything about this case like really quick. And then you've got to act smart about this case really quick. And you've got to come up with arguments really quick. And you've got to do it like in writing and sound smart. And it's just and the, the more that, verbose, the better. You know, you just yeah, keep their right. attention longer and they think better of you. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, this is a 50 page brief. That's why we just charge you 20 grand for it. Um, <laughs> So that it's those skills are like tailor made. They, people ask like, why are there so many ex lawyers who are like blogger types and stuff? And it's it's totally that. It's it's all about processing and assimilating information quickly, and then coming up with having some take on it really fast. And that could be really bad, obviously, because we are drowning in takes. But um, it certainly is what helps me do what I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah I I, I, I'm there's definitely like a. Uh, corporate worker to baseball blogger pipeline like right. as far as it uh, our guests go right i mean we have you we've uh we've had on rob mains we've had, had on meg rowley like mm-hmm. all people who came from like white collar jobs to just like <laughs> make jokes about pitchers pooping their pants and, stuff, <laughs> and i love that well it's fun right i mean i swear i turned to the i've always been a baseball fan of course but you know when i started writing just like as a blog, like before it was even a job or before I had made any money from it, it was because I was burnt out. Like I, I, I'd been doing that for a long time and it sucked and I hated how dreary the business and the legal world was. And I needed something. I just got done with like a a two year legal representation of some white collar criminal that just reinforced every terrible thing that I thought about the world and made me hate my life. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to wake up every morning and write about baseball for a couple of months and see if that makes me feel better. And now it's like 14 years later and I'm still doing it. Well, you yeah. picked a sport with all sunshine and rainbows. Didn't <laughs> the rosy <laughs> sport of baseball. <laughs> so that's the thing. I get so much crap. People say, you're so cynical. You're so negative. Don't you even like this sport? I'm like, are you kidding me? I love this. You want to hear about shit I hate? That's something else entirely. <laughs> yeah. I, I think like, because people have had that criticism of us before too. Um, but I think for the most part, people know and, and they're here because they realize that we love the sport. But I always say to people, I'm like, I must love it if I keep coming back to it after talking about and thinking about all of this stuff all of the time, right? Yeah, the, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Yes. And when I stop caring and writing about baseball, you'll know that I've really let it go. 
<laughs> owners are living rent free in my head, which is how you know that oh, I love baseball. Oh, a hundred percent. I I just recently picked up because I'm a, a walking white guy cliche. I recently picked up uh, soccer fandom. I've decided this year was the year after many false starts that I'm going to become an English soccer fan because they need more of those. And uh, the one thing that I, I have reason I've done it is because the baseball owners have lived in my head rent-free for so long. And because everything that happens at baseball, I, I start to process in terms of what do I hate about that? And it's <laughs> been years since I just sort of took on something new where I could just watch it uncritically and let it wash over me as entertainment. And so I'm yeah. trying to see if soccer does that. I'm guessing by, you know, April, I'm going to be like writing screeds about, you know, soccer owners too. But for now, it's actually refreshing. Yeah. I, I completely sympathize with that. I've had fits and starts where I've like gotten into the Premier League and then kind of you fall away because the, the players transfer to literally different countries so often that it's so hard to yeah. keep up with if you're not waking up really early. And then being on the West Coast, it's even earlier for oh, me to yeah. wake up and watch these games. It's just nuts. Um, yeah, 7.30 in the morning here is is perfect for me, but I couldn't do that if I was out in California. We're going to get into to corporate screeds pretty soon about MOB owners, and we're going to talk CBA. We'll probably talk a little bit of gambling as well, which has been a large theme of your newsletter uh, this year. But before we do, I, I kind of wanted to take your temperature on the 2021 MOB season, a little bit of a, a rose thorn, if you will. What have you loved and what have you, uh, what has really been sticking in your craw this year as you, as you watch the pandemic um, return season? You know, I've certainly loved that it's a season, like a real season. Last year was interesting in a lot of ways, and it was interesting and fun sometimes to talk about, but the circumstances were so dreary and uh, the, the season was distorted into so much. But So just having that day-to-day 162-game season has been really nice. Certainly having the fans back um, after the first month or whatever it was was uh, has been really nice. Um, one, one thing I've noticed in all these soccer, I've watched like eight soccer matches in the last two weeks. Every single First thing the announcer says is, oh, and having the fans back is so wonderful here at whatever (laughs) grounds. And um, it's true, though. It's absolutely true. It's it's really nice having that just dynamic of, you know, my thing with baseball is, you know, postseason is great, but I like the day-to-day flow of the regular season and just the fact that, you know, there's a game on, I can watch it for two hours, and if I get drowsy, I can just turn it off, and I don't care because it doesn't matter. And uh, having that rhythm back to baseball is great. Uh, as opposed to the sprint last year. Uh, I have certainly liked, uh, I liked how the Dodgers, the Padres uh, loaded for bear this year for a two team race. And it's turned into a three team thing with <laughs> those two being the worst of the three um, <laughs> in the NL West. I think the NL West race has been great. It's not a race. The giants are winning it nicely, but all that talent and, and teams that are trying has been really nice because right. are you saying you team- are, you're enjoying the competition in the in the NL West, multiple teams going for it. Yeah, it's 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 weird how when you have sports where, where they actually try to get better, what, what you know, crazy. Um, so that's been good. Uh, you know, just having baseball back normal has been good. As far as bad, it's the same thing that's been now for a couple of years building of just you know that whole strikeouts, lack of action kind of game that we really have a problem with the the nature of the game and uh, you know the crackdown on pine tar and substances this year i think has been successful for what it's set out to do but it's showing just how big the problem is because it doesn't it has barely made a dent in that three true outcomes kind of baseball or one true outcome if you want to just focus on the strikeouts um it's barely made a dent and it just shows you how big of an issue it is so that's something that is continuing to be annoying uh for me it's interesting because 
I almost feel like that that narrative has been pushed to the side a little bit this year. Like I feel like I don't see as many people yelling about it, in part just because they have so many other things to yell about, right? Yeah. Like, there are so many distractions and quote-unquote scandals, if you want to call it that, that the actual focus on like gameplay and pace of play and, and strikeouts, all those things you were mentioning, I feel like have been put on the back burner, so to speak. It, it'll come back in October, though, because like when we have these mm-hmm. postseason games going until 1247 Eastern, um, then people will start talking about that again, and everybody's executing their pitch to the nth degree because the game's so much more important. But yeah, it has a little, it has faded a little bit because you're right that you know the world's been on fire for a year and a half, and you can only you can only work up so much outrage about uh, you know pace of play. I mean, Joe Sheehan can do it because he can work up outrage about everything, but uh, most of us mortals can't really keep that sustained. I the definite definitely the sticky stuff crackdown discourse has fallen off quite a bit um since it's since its peak when they first initially started checking. Um even when like even when you're at the game, it doesn't really seem that intrusive. It seems like part of the flow of the game. I think they've actually done a pretty good job with that and just checking pitchers as they're coming off and the pitchers know that it's coming now and it's a little bit yeah. more natural and it doesn't it doesn't really bother me. The suspensions, yeah. I'm surprised that there's only been like one or two suspensions. Yeah, we've Honestly. only had the one Santiago, and we might get another one for that guy in the D-backs um, who got ejected last week for whatever was on his glove. Maybe nothing, but um, yeah, it's it's flowed pretty well. And I went to a Triple A game here in Columbus not long after they started doing that because they're doing it in Triple A too. And yeah, it's it's pretty seamless. Um, other what was it? Uh, Lance Lynn threw his belt out on the field last week. That was kind of fun. But yeah, that's yeah, just probably because he was trying to like change belts and hide his pine tar or something. <laughs> I appreciate that most uh, most players have been a good sport about it. All things considered, I th- there we could have seen way more meltdowns. Um, I, yeah, that, there's there's a conformity in baseball, and I don't mean that in the bad sense, like when you're criticizing conformity. Uh, you know, when when they decide, to, everybody talks about how you can't change anything in baseball because of the tradition and everything else, but. Baseball players, either the way they're wired and the umpires, the way they're wired, when they do change something, it generally is fairly seamless. There's there's outrage among people like us for a week or two, but it's just part of the deal. And you think of just think back 15, 20 years ago about how many things that didn't exist, whether they're rule changes or whether you know replay or anything else, it, you get used to it pretty quick. And that's a good thing. It's also it's a bad thing in the sense that you know, people like Rob Manfred are very aware that once something is dealt with, even if it's not dealt with well or smart or uh, sufficiently, uh, people just say, okay, that's sorted, we're done. And we move on to the next thing. And so when you saw it with the crackdown, you'll see it with a lot of other things. You saw it with steroids, you saw it with anything that happens. Um, as soon as they say, okay, we have now done something, everybody goes, okay, they've done something. And only cranks like me are out there like yelling about whether or not it was a good job. Well, okay. I, I Yes, because... I think that instant replay is still a very intrusive thing that I personally have not gotten used to. And I think a lot of people have not gotten used to. Yeah, that might be the bad example. (laughs) It's not just the existence of instant replay. It's the execution, really. Like if they were able to limit it to 20 or 30 seconds, it would be one thing. It would be more, I would feel more similarly about how I feel about the sticky stuff checks as they're walking off the field. But the fact that it's routinely taking three, four, five, ten minutes in a game, in, in a playoff game or whatever... Is just is just absurd. Like I was at a Mets Dodgers game yesterday, and they decided to huddle up and review a foul ball that was like a good foot and a half foul. And yeah. I'm just like in a full count with the bases loaded, 
and two outs, you're stopping this game for three minutes so that you can confirm that this was two feet foul. It's just, it's a crutch yeah, it's, now. It's, it's really bad. Um, when they first started talking about we're going to do instant replay, I know they, they had initially instituted that home run review thing only, but when Bud Selig was still commissioner and they were talking about, okay, we're going to do this, I'm like, great, that's perfect because we had some really high-profile bad calls. We had the the Armando Galarraga perfect game that was screwed up. Um, and, you know, my first thought and a lot of other smart people's first thought is, great, we're going to have a replay ump. He's going to be the fifth man up in the booth and he's going to watch the game and have a couple extra screens. And when sees something is amiss, he's going to click his little clicker and he's going to say, no, that was wrong. And it's going to just be seamlessly taken care of. Why that was never done, I have no idea. Still, Why they turned it into into gamesmanship and challenging. Uh, the, I think what the issue is about really is Major League Baseball, especially since Manfred took over, but even before a little bit, is very loath to give umpires more judgment and thus more power. And so every rule change that you have seen in the last decade or so has been aimed at taking judgment calls away and trying to turn things into objectives, even if they're not objective. Um, you, you know, if if you see... Uh, in other sports, and again, I'm going to just go back to soccer again because I'm just starting to pay attention to it a lot. I know people complain about you know video assisted replay or whatever they call it there, um, but but it is fairly quick and it is just okay. The umpire has said what it is. The the, the official has said what it is. Uh, if you had the fifth guy in the booth, just saying yes or no or not doing anything, and the call stands on the field you would complain and you would still say it's a bad call, but there would not be all of this storm and drawing about getting there. We wouldn't have those bounce off the, the, the bag challenges uh, when guys steal bases or slide into bases where, Oh, did his finger come off for a millisecond and he got tagged? We, because the judgment would be that you're not going to challenge that, but baseball wants to take judgment away from umpires, take power away from umpires. And, and that's why we have what we have. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, I'm the last guy that wants to like empower Joe West. Right. Um, you know, they're they're objectively really bad at a lot of parts of their job. But if you're gonna have an official, you gotta give an official the power to officiate the game. So what I'm yeah. taking from this is back the blue, stand by Joe West under any circumstances. You 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 should see my new flag that I'm working on as soon as I have my <laughs> Oh God. <laughs> Be the same damn flag. You know the umpires would have come up with that flag if the cops didn't. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> when the, I I am just always reminded, constantly reminded of any time umpire discourse comes up, I'm constantly reminded of the time that they decided to come out with like the was it a white wristband, armband, or oh, whatever, or, or was it a black armband to like signify solidarity with their fellow umpires as they were under attack? Oh man, yeah, I I forget the details of that, but yeah, the 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 level of drama queendom that you get out of the umpires with that situation, and and then I go back to like that whole labor thing. Was it in the late '90s when a bunch of them just handed in their resignations, and uh, as as a means of like you know trying to get leverage, you know, a bunch of them quit, and Bud Selig was like, "I accept cool. those terms," <laughs> <laughs> got rid of all the bad umpires at the time, or most of them. So uh, yeah, the, the umpires, man, I don't know what makes them tick. And they, they are the worst people to make a good case on. So that's probably another reason why my fifth man in the booth idea just never was going to play. Yeah. Well, so um, speaking of other fires that have started and that we really just uh, cannot control anymore, um, gambling. Betting yes. on games. Uh, there's no easy uh, pivot to this, be in part because it looms so large over the game. Um, but I, I, I remember one week 
um, a couple of weeks ago. I think it was like a like a core part of cup of coffee for like four or five <laughs> straight days, right? It was like the yeah. the, the uh, Wrigley like sports book plans had come out, and then uh, I think Sinclair announced plans for like some a new broadcast, yeah, right, broadcast, and there was the, the the barstool partnership, and there was like this whole um, kind of explosion, and so. I we I know we kind of want to get into the specifics of it a little bit because Bobby and I can talk at length about our our distaste for it, but uh, there's a somewhat lack of um, professional opinion here on this sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it, for me, it's like I mean I have a general distaste for gambling on a personal level. Um, I mean I don't really hide that. I get people say, "Well, you're just a prude." And I'm like, "Well, yeah, kind of, I guess." I mean I I I. I, I am not a gambler by nature. I, I go to Las Vegas once in a while and I'll, you know, spend $75 at a blackjack table and I feel like I basically lost my house. I just don't have the the you know disposition for it or the temperament for gambling. But that's that's not really my big issue with it in baseball. Um, you know, it's icky, sure, to me. I, I think it's, you know, a little low rent. I think that baseball of all things is probably a very difficult thing to uh, to gamble on anyway. I'm sure there are a lot of professional gamblers. They've told me before, oh no, if you have systems and you know how to play and everything, I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. I just think that baseball tying uh, itself to the gambling industry in the way it has, and baseball media as well, is another in a series of moves, but maybe the most significant of moves that renders winning irrelevant. Um, baseball has been really good over the last seven to 10 years of trying to divorce its revenues from the on-field product, uh, trying to limit risk as much as possible. If you're the Pittsburgh Pirates and you lose 110 games in 1975, you're, well, they were really good then, so that's a bad example. But if you're the Pittsburgh Pirates in another era and you lose 110 games, that's really bad. You're going to lose money. You're not going to get people in the seats. You're not going to get people watching or listening. And it's not good. And so you have an incentive to get better because you want to make more money. Baseball now has made it almost to the point where it doesn't matter how bad your team is you could still make money, whether it's these real estate investments that teams have, whether it's corporate partnerships, other things, cable deals that last 25 years instead of 10 years um, that have just insulated baseball from financial pressure that is based in winning. Gambling is the ultimate in that because if you are the house, you win no matter what. That's the design of gambling. Baseball is becoming the house. Baseball media is becoming the house. Not only are they advertising for gambling, they are part of the gambling industry. They are taking cuts of the action. Um, and I think it's just a bad thing for the game to so conspicuously promote things that uh, that lead to a, a degradation of the product on the field. And I think that that's the biggest objection that I have to gambling. That's before you even get to the very obvious externalities of gambling, which is, you know, problem gambling, gambling addiction. Uh, we're going to have it. There are... There are uh, studies of, of countries where sports gambling has been mainstream for way, way, way longer than here. Australia is a big one. England's a big one. I mean, that's it's just part of the culture. It's everywhere. And, uh, you know, 
problem gambling rates are higher. They are bad, and they and they are focused more on people who are into sports. And there's it's it's a one. It's it's very clear to see the relationship between the promotion of sports gambling and then sports fans becoming problem gamblers. And I don't think baseball gives a lick about that. I don't think they care, and I don't like to be a part of it. And I feel like I'm a part of it, and I hate it. Yeah, it's just a, so to me, and I love the way that you tie it to the on-field product because for me, it's like. It seems like under Manfred, baseball has like gotten itself into a lot of things that it's not equipped to really participate in in any moral way at all. Like real estate, for example. Yes. Like last summer when they were talking about anti-racism, like they are because they are chasing certain revenue streams because they see a danger with not saying something with regards to a nationwide racial movement for racial justice. They step into it. But they're not really equipped for it. The people there are not equipped for it. The PR is not equipped for it. The public messaging is not equipped for it. And it's the same thing with gambling because there just seems to be a lack of tone or, or, or like they're overstepping with their tone in a way that doesn't really seem to acknowledge what you're talking about with like gambling addiction in other countries. And it's the exact same thing with real estate, right? Like the business of baseball is no longer baseball. You're 100% right about that. But even if the business of baseball was real estate, it didn't need to be this bad. Like it didn't need to be the Ricketts completely and totally gentrifying that area of Wrigleyville and pushing everybody out and raking in all of the cash. Like it's one thing for you to understand that developing an area could then lead to revenue in the future in that area and owning some of those buildings, but also like contributing back to the city the way that John Fisher is saying he's going to do in Oakland, but not actually going to do. But it's an entirely different thing that the way that the owners have chosen to do it. There is just a, a nihilism to it and an amorality to it because it's very clear. And I, I'm not naive. I, I'm not somebody who believes that it just recently became all about the money because it's always been about the money, right? I mean, yeah. we know that. But the true end is about the money now in ways that it never really has been because now there isn't even the pretext of we're in the baseball business and we have a certain number of values. They don't have to be my values. They don't even have to be admirable values. There just are no values uh, other than the the pursuit of revenue streams and the exploitation, the maximal exploitation of various revenue streams, whether or not it makes any sense within the context of baseball. And an example is, you know, moving the All-Star game is a great example of what happens when you don't have principles. They, they moved it not because they cared about the Georgia voting laws. I mean, I don't think they did. Some people in the game might have, but not the decision makers. They moved it because they were worried about corporate boycotts that might harm their sponsors. They're worried about people picketing. And the only reason they worried about that stuff is because controversy means that it's an interruption of money. And if you had, you know, various corporations taking their advertising away from Major League Baseball because it, you know, they didn't read the moment in Georgia very well. Maybe it, it maybe if they just shut up and didn't do anything, we would have had the All-Star game in Atlanta uh, because it just wouldn't have carried over to July. I don't know. But the only thing they cared about was we're going to lose some revenue. And so what happens is some people that don't pay too much attention to Major League Baseball thinks, oh, that's great. They're taking a stand for voter access and democracy. Well, no, they weren't. And so, and you could tell because when they're asked about any of that stuff, they don't have an answer. And they end up doing good causes that they might even back into inadvertently. They end up doing them harm because they can't even stand as good spokesmen for them. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's all very cynical. And, uh, it's just really hard to watch in an institution that I love. And uh, that's just, that's been Rob Manfred's thing. I mean, when he came in as commissioner, 
he basically cleaned house entirely in the Major League Baseball offices on Park Avenue. I guess they're not in Park Avenue anymore. They used to be. Um, but uh, he cleaned house. He got rid of communications people. He got rid of basically anyone who was a ceiling guy. And everybody he brought in are, you know, he named a chief revenue officer. I mean, they have a chief revenue officer who is a very, very important person in baseball. Probably way more important than, uh, you know, whoever is doing on the field stuff. And there's a reason Chris Young left Major League Baseball's front office to go be the Rangers GM. He was the heir apparent. He was like the new Joe Torre, who was in charge of on-field stuff, umpire stuff. That is such a low priority in Major League Baseball. And he probably quickly realized that that was a career dead end for him. That is not the stepping stone to being the next commissioner that it might have been a long time ago. The next commissioner is going to be a revenue guy. And uh, so it just tells you everything about the organization from the top down. Yeah, one of our um one of our listeners actually uh emailed us this week about a about a spot fixing scandal in Pakistan uh or between the uh, on uh, among the Pakistan national cricket team um in a game against England. This is back in like 2010 where play, pay, players were essentially placing bets on um on individual like bowls, right? Not necessarily on the outcome of the game. Yeah, like props and but, things, yeah. Right, exactly. Uh and I I just saw the um just I think a couple weeks ago that that was some the a a type of betting that was going to be potentially be introduced to baseball, right? You can bet pitch on by pitch. on balls. Oh, yeah. You can bet oh, on that's, on stretch. That's the right? money. Yes. If you if you read the stuff it's not about the lines before games. It's the in-game stuff. And that's why all the TV networks are really in play on this. That's why where media comes in is because on your app, while you're watching the game, it'll keep you watching a three-hour mm-hmm. game that you might not have watched. So it's going to be, will the next pitch be a strike? And you're seeing this even before it's implemented in, in full. Some, it, early in the season, when I was bitching about this a lot, because it was, it was in the social media for, for even teams and for the league of, you know, who's going to have the first hit tonight? Freddie Freeman? Or, you know, mm-hmm. and... You know, that's that's just trying to prime the audience for that kind of in-game interactivity. Yeah. And it's better yeah. for the companies, too, because they can take a cut of each thing that doesn't seem intrusive. If you're only uh, betting a dollar, they take, oh, yeah. you know, if they take 15% of that, it's just 15 cents. Whereas, like, if they take 15% of, like, your your future bet, you might be like, oh, I'm not going to bet as much, but you don't realize it when it's just a dollar for each pitch. Like it just yeah. seems like it's lower stakes. It's all, I mean, that's where, I mean, think about like how DraftKings started and all those companies started, right? It, it all seemed pretty low stakes. Oh, I've already been playing fantasy baseball and I'm just going to put a little bit more money on it. And it's that same model. It's all about the volume and the service charges and everything else. They they don't get you on on the subscription. They get you on the, on the service charges. Sorry, I say that as a person who has a subscription product, but it's true. <laughs> and it, it's... Are you going to start charging people for different sections of the newsletter? <laughs> I've had people request charge. I, I've had people request that I write other se- new sections that are like a sort of off my bailiwick, and they say they pay pay a little bit more for it. I'm like, you don't want me to start doing that. <laughs> That's just a bad model. But um, you know, the thing about like what what happened in Pakistan, when you see people that push back, when people push back against me on my anti-gambling thing. They're like, this isn't 1919. These ballplayers make millions of dollars. We're not going to have a huge scandal like that. I said, I know, we're not. We're not going to have, you know, Tim Anderson is not going to be caught in a game-fixing scandal. Um, these, that's not how it's going to work. But what's going to work is some players, you know, soon-to-be ex-wife is going to have an Instagram post talking about how the brother-in-law, uh, you know, 
got him to take four pitches because if he took four pitches, I can make 500 bucks and blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, somebody who works for a player or there's, you know, we had a, we had a game fixing scandal with a referee in basketball this century. Okay. Um, I, I really don't think that lower level things like that, uh, are out of the question. We'll probably see it. Yeah. Well, and that's the, that feels like the most pernicious part to me, right? Is that it's going to appear in ways that maybe we did not expect or anticipate that will harm the medium to long-term stability of the sport. The last thing that baseball needs right now is a gambling scandal, right? right? Amid everything else it's trying to dodge. And it's going to be one, like you said, it's, you know, you always fight the last war, not the next one. Right. And, and, you know, you go into, you go into Iraq fighting Vietnam and that's what (laughs) ends up happening. Uh, we're, we're, everybody's going to be trying to think of, there's going to be a new Black Sox scandal and we're not going to have that. We're going to have something completely different, or we're going to have just like a, a, a general integrity issue. Um, we're, we're going to have some scandal where a broadcaster, uh, give some information about an injury or something inadvertently, oh, yeah. oh, and then all of a coming. sudden, and then all of a sudden, it becomes comes a big problem. There's a new rule about media access because it's it's you know screwing up uh, the, the the sports books don't like it, and it, it's going to be just that kind of thing that compromises the product. Yeah, broadcasters, well, Craig, we... that that bastion of morality that has been proven <laughs> in this past year. What are you talking about? Oh man, yeah, it's. Uh, it, I don't even. I we will we will long for the days of casual racism among our broadcasters and <laughs> and just uh, no. I'm kidding, but yeah. Oh, when we cross the bridge to being able to place bets in minor league stadiums, it's going to be a total shitstorm because those oh, players actually do need to fix the games in oh, order yeah. to be able to pay their rent. So, like, just know that I'm sure that owners probably want that. And I'm sure that the minor league teams would sign off on it because they're barely breaking even as it is because they're not getting any financial support from the parent clubs. So that's that's where I'm going to look for the scandal personally. Oh yeah, minor league baseball where those people are so cash strapped that they actually there is a cost benefit analysis there that is positive. Oh, I can't even imagine. Or or you know some major leaguer is down on a rehab uh, stint and uh, you know you you give uh, you give some. 32-year-old career minor leaguer, a few thousand bucks to slide in spikes up. I mean, yeah, it could get ugly. You can see, I can see that. But as long as um, a handful of people are sucking up the money in the short term, the what is the what is the long-term integrity of the sport really really well, matter? At well, point? and who's going to say anything, right? If you work for ESPN, right. you you are also partnered with casinos now. Or my old employer, NBC, is partnered with casinos. The Athletic is partnered with gambling interests. Uh, MLB.com all works for Major League Baseball, which is partnered with gambling interests. Uh, and if you work for the newspapers and you're an independent, and that's an increasingly shrinking field of uh, sports journalists, you probably don't want to piss off the gamblers because I'm sure the casinos are one of the bigger advertisers in print media. And uh, so who? there's no one out there you see some groans sometimes but you know sometimes i feel like i'm i'm beating the drum too loud or too long and i'm boring everybody but literally no one else is doing this and it's crazy guys like you guys like me and a few others and that's it everybody else is just like oh now we're doing gambling okay (laughs) this is the next big thing um i i wanted to hit nail down on something that you said um a little bit in just in how Manfred has reshaped baseball in talking about like risk management basically for the owners and their financial portfolios, I think one of the biggest shifts 
that we've seen uncovered. This is not a new shift, but this is something that we've talked about more and more and realized more and more as we've done this show over the years is that owners used to compete against each other and now they just compete against the players 100% of the time. Like they were competing mm-hmm. against the players at the time, but they also used to compete against each other. So they had multiple enemies that were dividing their attention and now they're just like fully in it with each other and mm-hmm. sharing revenue and the Tampa Bay Rays owner who's crying poor all of the time is cashing checks from the New York Yankees owner. And so really they are in a way, like a union of their own, the yeah, way that they I, handle it on that side of the table. And I think an example of the, a, a recent example of this that is that we have not had a chance yet to discuss on the podcast, and what better person to talk about it with you is this is this salary floor proposal mm-hmm. that they've come across. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the salary floor. Obviously, the numbers that they've come up with are just ludicrous and absurd and hilarious starting point for the bargaining. But in general. What do you think their angle is to it? Do you think that there is a way that the players could turn it back to be pro-union? And um, just kind of what does it indicate in the trend of the CBA negotiations as we're heading into this offseason? Well, I think that offer, that salary floor offer, it was so unserious that it tells you a couple things about the owners. It tells you that they are so confident. (laughs) I mean, and they have every reason to be. They have handed the players their lunch for a long time now. I mean, the players dominated in CBA stuff for 30 some years and the last few rounds the owners have had it and it's for the reason you say there's solidarity now on the ownership side there wasn't before uh there were all kinds of huge divisions now there's just low level grumbling um whereas players uh you know I am an extraordinarily pro union guy so I don't want to take this as that casual union bashing thing that you you hear sometimes but they did get comfortable enough where they they stopped fighting over existential issues like they were in the 60s and 70s to where I think a lot of them just sort of like, oh, why should I care about this? Why should I care about that? And and they sort of lost the lost the plot a little bit. Um, I don't think that the players are ever going to get back to where they were, you know, in the 60s through the through the mid-90s of uh being able to dictate the terms of anything. I, they they're not getting back to a situation where guys who are 32 years old are, are getting giant contracts. That's just done. And nothing short of a very long work stoppage uh, is going to change some big fundamentals like you know six-year free agency or three-year arbitration or just those very foundational things. There might be tweaks to those things, but it's going to take a lot of creativity and a lot of give and take. Um, I, I think that there, since last year, has been a newfound level of seriousness among the, the players in the union. Uh, I've, and I've gotten this from observing and just from talking to some people on background about how things work with the union dynamic right now, guys who are in leadership positions in the union, like Max Scherzer are a lot more on the ball than maybe the guys were five years ago. Um, There is some very passionate leadership now at the top. And so that key issue of solidarity, which all the players have is a threat to strike. That's really all they have. Um, It's all any power has. Yeah. It's all any withholding your labor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so and public sentiment, which is never going to be in the, in favor of the players. Oh yeah. They make 30 million and everybody knows what they make as opposed to the owners. You're right. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, if you talk to people at the union, you talk to Bruce Meyer, who is like their chief negotiator. You talk to Tony Clark, you talk to any of these people, uh, people will always say, well, why don't you have a better PR operation? And it always seems like the, the reporters are giving MLB side and they're like, that doesn't win us anything. They're going to hate us anyway. And they wouldn't put it in those terms, but it's true. It doesn't matter how righteous the player's position is. The fans are just going to be like, those rich jackasses, we don't, you know, they're being paid to play a kid's game. So it doesn't matter on that side. Um, 
I, I'm leaning like 60-40 right now that we're going to have a lockout in like January. Um, I think that's where it's going. I, I think there are just way too many big issues um, floating around right now. And I don't know that they can get it done. I don't think it's going to change a whole lot. Um, I don't necessarily think it'll be a long lockout. And at the end, I think we're just going to get sort of a rejiggering of the current deal. But uh, it wouldn't shock me at all if the owners, if you see the owners come up with a basically a, a reversing proposal. I mean, the proposal from last week was we're essentially going to change what is now a soft salary cap from $210 million to $180 million at a time when revenues have risen crazy. That is so unserious an offer that you know they're going to play hardball in any other number of ways. And I think that's how they're going to approach the negotiations as well. What do you see as the the, the things that are at like biggest at stake uh, this this off season? Because I think that I mean Bobby and I kind of did a did a check in about a month or, or so ago and and tried to read the tea leaves a little bit. But it's obviously it's so hard to actually try and divine. Uh, most all of this stuff happens behind closed doors. But and this feels like the first real nugget that we've gotten in a while about something that one of these sides has put forth. And as you mentioned, it's so ludicrous that I, you know, the players union would obviously not take it seriously, but it, it does seem to suggest that at least on the owner's side of things, they want to limit the amount of money that is, that is coming in and out or or coming, coming onto the field at least. So in that story, it was Ken Rosenthal's story in the athletic that, that reported that offer that salary floor offer, there was this line in there that almost everybody else ignored that said the players made a proposal in May and no one really knows the details of it. And then in -hmm. some ways, this was a response to it. So it suggests to me, and and of course, we didn't know about that May one because again, the MLBPA doesn't really deal with the press the same way MLB does. They call Ken Rosenthal and say, hey, here's what you're going to write tomorrow. (laughs) Um, Basically, they they basically do. Um, I'm guessing that it was in that same general arena. The idea of it, players really do care about the tanking issue, not necessarily competitively. They're just, they just really care that a bunch of teams are running out 65, $75 million payrolls. And that's just not a good thing for them. Um, and so I'm pretty confident that one thing that's being talked about is how can we get all 30 teams to try harder and pay more, which is another way of saying, let's have more overall money uh, paid out one way or the other revenue yeah right like i think players would they still the official line is still we do not want a salary cap we never will do a salary cap and and they will always say that's the official line um but i think if there was some sort of thing that they could call that isn't a salary cap that would maybe make it so that certain teams couldn't spend a lot but it would certainly encourage a lot of other teams to do it i think the players would probably listen um, again, they say they wouldn't. If there any, anybody with the union listening to the podcast is going to throw their hat right now and say, oh, Calcaterra is full of it because we would never agree to that. But I think that a floor situation that isn't going to create also create a really harsh cap is feasible. So my guess is that they're talking about those sorts of things. Here's where I bog at the salary floor idea, though. Anything that mm-hmm. is a hard number that doesn't change year over year based on the revenue is going to be pro-owner with, by the end of this contract, though. Because the revenues are going up and up and up, and these TV deals just keep getting bigger and bigger, and the gambling money is flowing in faster than ever at a pace that it's, it'd be really hard for the union to anticipate. And so if you say the floor is 150 or the floor is 120, 
in five years, that might look insane. Like the NFL salary cap looks insane comparatively to to what it used to. Every year, it goes up by so much. Yeah, and, a, a huge miscalculation by the players about ten or fifteen years ago was they just didn't anticipate the way that revenue was going to explode. And when they started agreeing to the luxury tax, or now they call it the competitive balance tax, um, they just didn't realize that you know, 200 million or 175 million or wherever it was set at any given time might look silly in a year or two. And I think what really opened their eyes uh, was when Major League Baseball developed and then sold BamTech to Disney and made like $3 billion. billion Yeah, Yeah, $4 billion, whatever it was. Um, uh, And they didn't get a penny of it? And they didn't get a penny of it, even though they were proof of concept. They, you know, realized, oh, crap. But by then, they had already locked themselves into these things of we are going to, at the CBA, set what that ceiling is. And then this last one was ridiculous, how it didn't go up a lot. That was the biggest miscalculation at all, of all. Um, so, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you can't unring those bells, but you have to assume, especially with this gambling stuff, that revenues are going to go crazy. Once we normalize from the COVID year uh, and, and whatever is still falling out from that, uh, revenues are going to just be jacking back up again and they have to get on that train. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the funny thing is like, I, I feel like we are, we are still trending in the right direction. As you mentioned, like, I think it seems like there are more players now than there were a few years ago who really are serious about this sort of thing. Right. I mean, we had on, uh, Jerry Blevins a a few weeks ago, we had on Colin McHugh a couple months ago, and these are guys who are really like tuned in, right? And who are, are like, no, the, the players actually recognize kind of what is at stake here. They're like using labor theory of value talking points. Like straight up, (laughs) it's not. Exactly. It's a, a, well, they're all on Twitter now, right? And what was the thing on Twitter? Welcome to Twitter. Here's your copy of the communist manifesto (laughs) and a, you know, season (laughs) past of pro wrestling. I, it, you know, Monday Night Raw or whatever. Uh, I, I really do think that uh, some players have been radicalized. Yes. Yeah. I love it. Chris um, Bryant, right. welcome to the resistance, brother. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I, like we, we, he's very much, I, I would love to have a conversation with him because I think offline. Bobby and I have, I wouldn't have, even want it to be on the pod. Offline. Oh, no, 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 not no, at all. Cause he not knows his all. talking points. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, Bobby and I, I think <laughs> built him up as this labor hero, this labor <laughs> icon because of the the grievance that he filed. Which, like, sure, man, get your get your bag. But I'm sure there are a lot the of PA definitely to just that. went to his agent and was like, "You have a great case. Let's just yeah. do it, just to see what happens." And he was like, "Sure." I I do these running bits in the newsletter where I imagine these completely fictitious inner lives of players or alternate histories of players. Like I've got a bit where Dane Dunning, the pitcher for the Rangers, because I think his name sounds like some 1940s Hollywood star. Every time he pitches, I write this big thing about how, you know, his history in the movies doing B Westerns for Republic pictures (laughs) in 1943. And I could totally see doing like the secret communist history of Chris Bryant. And yeah, it, it would just piss off. He's more else. of an anarchist, really. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's maybe true. <laughs> I'd really have to think that one out. But yeah, definitely somebody. One of these days, I'm going to get some like completely unreconstituted, you know, Leninist ball player that I'm going to write about. Right, exactly. It's going to come out that Mark Canna's a Trotskyist or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Discourse. Yeah, we day. would have to. You'd have to delete Twitter but from our phones. For eventually, a day if that was the case. 
eventually some reporter always asked them about that. Like when I used to, when I, mm-hmm. I still do it, but when I started doing that most handsome managers thing every year, which is just like a big joke because I had no content and I was hung over one morning at the winter meetings and I decided to do the handsome manager rankings. Well, it started to take on a life of its own and like reporters will like ask Bruce Bochy, why are you the ugliest manager in baseball according to this reporter? <laughs> and it becomes a thing. And so most of them have been really, they, they joke about it. They think it's hilarious. Uh, well, no, uh, Brad Osmus did not like that. I called him the most handsome manager. He got very upset. But the idea of me turning a baseball player into like a Trotskyist, some reporter at some point, if it becomes a thing that I keep going, will ask him about that. And it's going to be the most confused and sad situation ever. <laughs> like, who's what with the who now? You know, it's going to be one of those deals. <laughs> They're like, I've never voted in my life before. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I heard about it on, on, you know, Newsmax, but I have no idea. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> Craig, can we talk about the minor leagues for a second? Sure. So I'm wearing a I'm wearing a Columbus Clippers t-shirt. As very we speak. nice. I so. I saw the Columbus. I wasn't sure if it was Columbus Crewer, but I see now. That's Columbus I was Clippers. like I was like maybe it's just a big big fan of the city, the metropolitan I mean, just, area of Columbus. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's all right. I've I've lived here like 30 years, and we've we've agreed to terms that you know, right. Yeah, that's about yeah. it. You've uh, compromised, and no one is happy. So you have your own CBA <laughs> with the city of Columbus. <laughs> exactly. Um. I think that, you know, in a dream world, the minor leagues would just suddenly overnight announce that they are unionizing ahead of these CBA negotiations and they're joining the MLBPA. I can, I would bet all of the money that I have and then some that that is not happening this year and it will not happen anytime in the near future or on any kind of schedule. It will just be a thing that happens gradually over time. Um, but I wanted to kind of ask your perspective on ways that the CBA negotiations could help younger players and minor leaguers if there are any. I obviously know that the PA does not represent minor leaguers, but there are things that they can do that would immediately help people as soon as they get called up to the 40-man roster in a way that they are not being helped quite as much in terms of their value to teams. So given the state of the minor leagues, given how MLB seems dead set on pretending like they're fixing it, but actually really just taking away minor league teams from towns, um, where are you kind of at on that idea? Because that's one of the big talking points of this podcast. I, I would love to see it, obviously. I, I don't think it's just a matter of the MLBPA does not represent them. I think they've acted hostily towards guys in the minors or guys who are going to be minors amateurs in the draft. I mean, the, the, the things that have been done to the draft and the capping of bonuses and everything else, that has been a complete matter of horse trading by the MLBPA for, by union members against guys who are not yet union members that make the owners very happy, but costs the current membership nothing. And that's a thing that the the union really deserves to be criticized on more than it's than it's gotten. So it would not just only take a change in that. I mean, it's not just a matter of can we throw up some you know talking point, give minor leaguers some more money, give them better conditions or whatever. It's going to cost the players something, but they have to go from not doing that they have to go from being hostile to not doing that and it's just i i don't see how that world happens if if you are a a 29 year old dude safely on a 30 a 40 man roster i i really don't know why you would give up any of your leverage i mean because you're a good person would be a good reason but um uh there's nothing compelling you to give up your leverage uh or give up any room on any issue you care about that's going to affect you directly for some kid that you don't know who's, you know, playing in single A somewhere. And that's that's the that's the problem. And as far as it coming from below with minor leaguers unionizing, they're there such a short time. And then the ones who actually have promise 
probably have a very real reason to worry that if they become agitators or advocates, that it's going to harm their career. Major League Baseball owners, by cutting the draft to 20 rounds, basically said it's like setting your own ships on fire because we're not going to go home. We're going to win this war. Like, you know, some conquistador doing that. It was, (laughs) we don't care if we are going to lose, you know, 20 rounds of future major leaguers who might help our team because we're going to save some money. That's what the owners just said. And if you are a prospect or a marginal prospect, especially, and you become a, a union activist, what confidence do you have that the major league team isn't going to retaliate against you in a major way? I know it's illegal, but it doesn't matter. Our courts and our whole system and our whole labor. They'll just make an Excel right document outlining exactly what they did that was illegal about it. Yeah, exactly. You know, get I mean, away with it. <laughs> right. We, we basically live in a country right now where you could do almost anything you want. The, 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 there is no one that is going to really, really put the hammer down on, you know, a president of baseball operations who didn't call up a guy because that guy's a problem. He, he's trying to, you know, he's trying to organize his clubhouse. Uh, well, he's, he's never going to be in ours. And I think that's a real fear. I bet you if you talk to minor leaguers, they're really afraid of that. Yeah, yeah, I do. I there feels like an, an alternate universe where there's a Save America's Pastime Act Part Two that exempts minor leaguers from like labor laws, right? Like we've already got oh, minimum yeah. wage. Now it's yeah, um, right to organize doesn't apply to them as well. Like we, it feels like we are moving. As much as I you know want to be an optimist about this thing, I feel like we're definitely moving in that direction where owners are actively trying to roll back any rights that have kind of been granted to them up until this point. For for decades, people said that the MLBPA was the strongest, most effective labor union in the country. Now it's a different kind of union, but there was an argument for that. And then, you know, I grew up in two places where the United Auto Workers and then the United Mine Workers, you know, everyone worked for them. Everyone was a member. Um, when those giant, powerful unions that were institutions in the American landscape are doing everything they can to hold on and and not, you know, just go completely under in certain ways. There's no way that you have a, a dynamic, a labor dynamic going on where a, a new union in an area that everyone thinks is not, you know, amenable to unionization for a lot of structural reasons is going to make a lot of hay in a very short period of time. It's like it's swimming against the tide. It takes a there's a third alternate universe where we change the entire labor landscape and this becomes like the pet project of a very powerful senator or president. And that third yeah. universe probably involves um, Bernie Sanders winning the presidential nomination and forcing <laughs> Congress to do something about this shit. Yeah, um, I mean not because, to, not to go not to go too far afield, but it's like, you know, this is this is a a symptom of everything going on in America. What's happening mm-hmm. in baseball is just Part of it's a not larger far afield thing. from what we usually talk about on this show, honestly. Yeah, is- yeah. So it's 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 just reflecting what's going on the country at large, and and then when I say things like, well, what's going to happen is it's it's going to have to you know be a progressive takeover of, of a lot of ways. Um, I, I in my more you know that's clearly my politics. I I'm a you know that kind of guy, but I also see that it's so very rare for these people to win. And there's a reason for that because, I mean, I'm not one of those people who say, oh, this is a center-right country and we can't change. I'm just very pessimistic. Uh, you know, where I live in Ohio, we, we used to be a bellwether state. We used to be like sort of both ways. And it's now just, you know, they, Trump got more votes in Ohio in 2020 than he did in 2016. Um, that's trending the wrong way. We, we just had a new progressive announce that she's going to run for senator for the open senatorial seat. 
against like JD Vance next year, whoever's going to get that nomination. She's not going to win. I love her, but she's not going to win. And I just, I need to see some more traction, man. And we just don't have it before I start talking about, you know, structural change happening on a level like we're talking about. That's on that happy note. <laughs> on that cheery note. <laughs> go buy a unionized the Miners t-shirt. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I want it to happen. I, I'm just yeah, very yeah. pessimistic. I mean, there there are ways in the interim. And I think that that was kind of, you know, Alex and I did not create the unionize the Miners t-shirts as a way to be like directly unionize the miners. Like we're we are not still we are not you know, pie in the sky about that. We created Naive it as a way. Thought, yeah, yeah, exactly. We created it as a way to one express something that we think should exist, and two have some sort of direct support for more than baseball in the meantime. Which well, there are more in, and more players who are doing a bit of that here and there. There even a guy like Pete Alonso, whose politics are not like us three. No. Definitely not like us three. There, Pete Alonso is selling his cleats for more than baseball, which tells you that there is some sort of solidarity spirit that could be tapped into if there was sort of a cultural reset within the land of baseball. I could ask Pete Alonzo's mom because she subscribes to the newsletter. And the hey. only reason, the only wow. reason I know that is because I made some joke about Pete Alonzo a few months ago and she gave me what for, um, which <laughs> wow. sorry, sorry, Mrs. Alonzo. Anyway, uh, but no, to back off my pessimism a little bit, you're absolutely right. It, it will take huge major structural like seismic change. But that has to start somehow. And yeah. if it only starts with people talking about something, you know, people wearing a unionized the miners shirt to get something that seemed impossible or something they never even thought about in their head, that's how things start. My pessimistic nature and my age, frankly, make me <laughs> the, the poorest spokesperson uh, for, you know, big movements that will take a lot of work in a long time. I'm just, yeah, I, I'm a really yeah. good sloganeer. I'm a really bad organizer and worker. And so I, I get, I get, um, pessimistic about that kind of stuff but it's absolutely true that that's how things change with yeah. little movements to, that turn into big movements yeah well it's why you uh advocate for universal health care knowing that you'll probably fall somewhere short of that rather oh, yeah. than universal health care for all who want it over the age of right. uh 35 200,000 like <laughs> i mean they taught us this in law school man it's like your first negotiating offer should be a really high one because otherwise you're just giving yourself a ceiling. You know who knows this? The owners. Baseball owners. The owners know that. Yes, they They know it very well. They're all McKinsey trained and they know it. It's like, you know. Uh, I believe that exhausts all of our topics um, and we've we've taken up so much of your time. You've been so generous and we're very appreciative of that. Um, Lastly, before we let you get out of here, is there anything else you want to say about Cup of Coffee, where people can find it? Anything else you're doing? Follow you on Twitter for your musings and rants? Oh, I'm, I'm not hard to find. I'm at Craig Calcaterra at Twitter. Um, just find a bunch of gamblers retweeting their hate for me and you'll, you'll find me pretty quickly. Um, and my newsletter, it's a five-day-a-week newsletter. It's in your inbox by 7 a.m. Eastern time every single morning. Uh, cup of Coffee at Substack.com. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. All of our followers should go uh, uh, follow Craig, subscribe to Cup of Coffee, send over your um, wax poetic to Field of Dream, about Field of Dreams to <laughs> Craig. I'm sure he would, I'm sure he would love to. Notorious loves love that film. Get in now before I start my partnership with BetMGM. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Craig. Thanks a lot, guys.
Okay, thank you to Craig. Uh, thanks to all those wonderful people who tweeted photos of themselves in our merch at us this week. Uh, before we get out of here, Alex, I want to shout out just a Mount Rushmore member of the podcast, Shakia Taylor, who wrote just an excellent article about Marcus Stroman in 538. Her first article for 538 about Marcus Stroman's win-loss record wearing different do-rags. An incredible article, an incredible idea for an article. And uh, everybody go check it out. We'll put the link in the bio. Yes, it's so good. It is absolute service journalism, the service journalism we need in 2021. And I enjoyed it a lot more than anything involving win pro- probabilities. Just, put, just, just putting it out there. Um, Tim Tebow got cut from the Jacksonville Jaguars. Should we spend five minutes on that? We used to end every episode of this show for people who haven't been listening for wow. years by doing a Tim Tebow Power Hour update. We retired that segment officially. We were not really doing it very frequently, but we retired that segment officially when he retired from baseball. But he might be forced to retire from all sports. He might just be a TV personality at this point and uh, like a mission trip kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know what? Nothing um, Nothing would surprise me more uh, than his continued ability, ability to fail upwards. So I don't know. There are probably some basketball teams out there who could use his skills. He has a way better chance of getting elected to Congress than J.D. Vance. <laughs> probably true. Uh, not probably. I think he could run for like senator and win. Yeah. Uh, I Florida? Mean, Are you kidding me? Cer- certainly like, yes, like a, a congressperson, like a um, a representative or something like that. Maybe, maybe a senator. Maybe that's the next step. All eyes on Depot. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Tipping Pitches. Uh, you can email us at, email us at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. Uh, we didn't do three up three down this week because we had such a long conversation, a long and fruitful conversation with Craig. Uh, we will bring that back next week as well as answer some voicemails next week. If you'd like to call into our voicemail and leave a message about something that you want us to talk about, a complaint that you have about your owner, whatever, 785-422-5881. Follow us on Twitter, tipping underscore pitches. Leave a review. Tell a friend. All of that stuff that podcast hosts are supposed to ask you to do, but we feel weird asking you to do, do it. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. When I say I love you, you say you better. Everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya.